Welcome to the Play Tracing Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Ronda. All season long, I talk to the engineers and toolmakers who make play possible, whose stories are at the fringe of game development and game design, but whose work is at the front lines of play. This time I speak with Doug Valenta and John Zajac, co-designers on the collaborative storytelling platform Moat, that's M-O-T-E, which you can find at MoatStories.com. As you'll hear, a lifetime as partners in life and in creative pursuits has led them into a couple ventures together supporting collaborative storytelling. Moat is a web app that allows groups of players to type into what looks like a chat bar. And upon pressing the enter key, each person's words are transformed into literary prose. I can appreciate that you need a little more help visualizing this, so I grabbed an old transcript. The Spirit of Camp Pinewood is a game by Aaron A. Reed made for Moat, and I played with John, my friend Hayden, and another Moat community member named Max. Hayden typed, he might actually hear you. Max typed, slash turn to look at Hayden, followed by, uh, what did you say? I type, slash, look at Hayden, then, slash, lower my skewer. Hayden typed, what, you babies haven't heard of the barnhouse arsonist? John typed, slash, Blanche. Keeping in mind that we'd already chosen character names, this is the snippet that Moe crafted for us in real time. He might actually hear you, she says. Frida turns to look at Leah. Uh, what did you say? She asks, as you look at Leah and lower your skewer. What? You babies haven't heard of the barnhouse arsonist, she asks. Oz blanches. The first time I saw Doug present Moat was a live stream for Narscope, a conference for interactive fiction and narrative game creators. I was transfixed by what I saw, and I've been a devotee of Moat ever since. Okay, see you on the other side. Hi, Doug. Hi, John. <laughs> Welcome to Play Tracing. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having us. Hi, Anthony. It's great to talk to you face-to-face -face for the first time. What has actually been really fun for the last 25 minutes now. While we were trying to figure out all of the silly recording snafus, you two have been cracking jokes at each other the whole time, and I'm not even sure where to get my bearings with the both of you. Is this, what it's, is this the experience of what it's like to build something together as well? This is daily life. John and I have been together in a relationship for 16 years. We've been married since 2014, and it's just a laugh a minute over here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all laughs. It's all laughs all the time in, in this pandemic household. No, but it's actually funny because that's actually been the journey of, of getting to Moat. We did plays together in Chicago, which was extraordinary. It was so incredible. That's how we fell in love. And then you can trace our journey and all of those experiences and all of our backgrounds in classical music, jazz music, theater, they all came together. What was it, three years ago, Doug, that we first started working on Moat? Yeah, I think that sometimes when you are in a relationship with someone, it's hard to work with them on like a project. John and I for sure have had that issue over and over again over a relationship, but we have never stopped trying. It feels like this is the time that we got it right. I'm the only programmer of the two of us, but so much of what happens in terms of design, figuring out what we want to make and who we want to make it for and, and how that has evolved with us over the years is it happens through dialogue and, and conversations and it happens more the more we're having those conversations. Why don't we just have each of you say your name and what your role is working on Mo? Why don't we start with uh, John? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My name is John Zajac, and my role is as the co-designer. I, I come up with how we communicate with folks. We work together to decide where Moat needs to go. We work together to actually develop the original concept of narrative chat, what form this particular narrative instrument was going to take. And I also am working a ton right now on how do we introduce an instrument, a new instrument to people. It's a really interesting engagement issue, right? How do I explain to you that you're learning an instrument, not playing a game? And yeah. Doug? Yeah, I'm Doug Valena. I'm an artist. John says that I'm a designer now and I'm a computer programmer. I come up with ideas that John will hate so that we can have really useful arguments about them until they become good is how I think of what I do. And I write a lot of code and not enough tests. And I also do all of the art and the 
design. I do a lot, a lot of mock-ups of different UIs that then we talk about and look at and critique and pick and choose what we want to actually make. And I make a lot of icons. That's a lot of the work is making a lot of icons. <laughs> There's definitely a design language to Moat. I would call it subtle, but it's just so beautiful. You can hardly call it subtle. Thank you. That's a great compliment. I think <laughs> one of the ways that we talk about it internally, what we really try and do is be opinionated about the design. We are super spare with how we use the storytelling space that we jump into a story and we're all playing characters and we're all adding to the story. Keeping that really spare is a super opinionated perspective. What I mean by that is that there's a movement right now in a lot of UI design to reduce the opinion of the designer as much as humanly possible and get to a mean, right? To get to this average experience. And so when you find yourself trending towards that average, trending towards that not opinionated design for the UI, it can, we found that it really bites us in the butt, to be honest. I think that there's a lot of ways in which the design of Moat has been much more holistic than a lot of industrial design processes that I've been a part of, I think probably that you've been a part of, John, industrialized creation of software is designed to be able to create one-way pipelines. We know what the app does, and then we can turn it into a, a wireframe, and then we can turn it into something that programmers make. So much of the creation of Moat has been about allowing those one-way directions to break down. I think part of that comes from it being a small group of people who have been mostly locked up inside of an apartment working on it. And there was a point when we were essentially making a mud engine and we were taking some UX cues from Slack. And there was a point where I would have called Moat Slack for MUDs. We were writing that code and also creating a visual design. And the UI that we had created started to suggest to us a page. And we started to see in it pros. It wasn't really pros yet, but we started to see a page. And then we had this idea, what if it was a page? What if it was pros? What if it was a book that was being written while you were playing? What if we short-circuited our parser and instead of trying to manipulate an underlying world state, we just turned it right back around and turned it into output. And that idea of just a page with a column of set pros on it, with new additions magically appearing at the tail end, it manifested very early and became then a guiding force on what Moat was. So much of our design work since then has been in service of trying to maintain that sort of singular image of the page. The listeners will have heard in the introduction a little bit of what I think mode is, as you said, it's not a game. You're calling it more like an instrument, but you do play it. What kind of play experience does it provide? Yeah, yeah. it's I think it's it's definitely perplexing. It's part of the experience is definitely a reading experience, right? It's the experience of reading. Part of it is sort of like the experience of writing, but it has a time dimension as well and a multi-author dimension all contributing at that same time. That can be good and bad. I think that it sometimes forces people into a space that's too simulationist, acting out, not just performative, but trying to act out actions. But it is that, right? There's a possibility for timing, for comic timing, for dramatic timing, for tension that builds in the way that tension builds on the stage or on the screen or, or in a piece of music. And it's also a mediating piece of technology. What you put in isn't exactly what you get out. As you become more comfortable with it, you can get out of it what you want by modulating what you put into it. But it isn't a Google Doc. It's actually more constrained than a Google Doc in ways that I think are really exciting. And that's where the conversation about music and, and instruments comes in. If we think about, and this is a, a, a definition that can be argued with, if we think about an instrument as a piece of technology that's used by an artist to create a performance, there is some of that in it. The narration engine itself creates a medium that allows people to collaborate polyphonically in a textual prose space. I think Doug describes it really well, the way that he pulls it together to show how the, the metaphor of the instrument is really useful 
you got to be careful when you have metaphors. You don't want to like just whole hog into them, but you can use them as a tool for understanding your exploration because we're both musicians. The idea of it being the act of creating these stories being very similar to, for example, jazz music, performing jazz music, or the balance between structure and chaos that exists in any kind of a straight theater. When you we go to see a play, you think you're seeing the perfect exact thing that they all rehearsed for months and months, but what you're actually seeing is this injection of chaos into this live performance. The actors up there are all about 30% panicked at all times because half of what's going on they've never seen before. We talk about multidisciplinary, we talk about integrated things, but it's rare to actually see them, right? And I think one of the reasons that mode is so exciting is that it's a truly integrated performative, authorial art form. You're just like, what the heck? I've never created this way before. Doug and I, for example, have an OG group that we've been playing for two and a half years with. And the first year of that was us just showing up and screwing around and telling stories for two hours with no structure. Some of my favorite memories has been in those moments of improv and just allowing myself to be in the space and, and be a part of the story in the moment. And so I think for me, that's the closest I could get to describing Moat without actually playing it with somebody. I, I want to give some acknowledgement there, like thinking about Moat as being like playing music and, and being like an instrument is something that John and I arrived at alone inside of our house, but there's prior art there. And I, I want to acknowledge, to my knowledge, the invention of the term textual instruments. It was first introduced by Noah Wardrop-Fruin, who's now at UC Santa Cruz. And I think that was back in 2003. We're not going to fact check that one. Great. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still not really a widely explored space. The very first time I joined on the Moat Discord server, the very first one that I joined, we did do just improvisationally. I can't remember exactly what story we did, but we had decided it on the spot. I was a little bit of frozen, a little bit of, oh gosh, what did I get myself into? But mostly because myself, like a lot of people, writing is a little bit more personal and you don't want to share until it's ready. I guess that's where that reaction came from. I want to say that you have done a lot with Moat in order to try to assuage that. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong. The very first thing that makes me think this is something that you want to try to discourage people feeling self-conscious about their work is that as soon as enough text has been added to the bottom, everything above, you can no longer scroll up to it. So you have only the working memory of everything that fits onto your screen. So that can do a lot to make you less self-conscious because pretty soon it's out of your sight. It's how Philip K. Dick worked, <laughs> right? Philip K. Dick never reread his work. He never went back and edited it. So he has, his novels are filled with continuity errors. Like you'd see in a, I don't know where you'd see them, but a moat story, <laughs> a moat story. Absolutely. <laughs> so yes, I mean that, that kind of it's, it's. I don't know if I want to say that it's, maybe it is radical, but it's, it's anti-usability maybe is what I would say. It is, I will acknowledge that, I will acknowledge that it is an accessibility problem and one that we would like to solve without losing what I think we've gained from that. But it's an anti-UX contrarian thing that we did. You've been in the Discord for a while, Anthony. It's probably the number one thing that we get questions about. Am I supposed to not be able to scroll up? It's like what we talked about before. It's really opinionated. Yeah. And it's opinionated in a way like you described, Anthony. We looked at it and we said, this is a in-the-moment experience in what is often a kind of almost navel-gazing, like people just sit and agonize over a sentence. We're all writers here and we all sit and we're just like, <gasps> and we wait like 15 minutes for one sentence. And what we needed to do in the design was short circuit that and say, it's time for you to just realize, frankly, that you're a good writer. It's time to realize that the characters drive the story. It's time to realize that you can perform as anything when you're a writer. It's time to realize that the story just keeps going and so you can try things. And I found myself to be a much better writer and a much faster writer since I started doing Moat because of what we call the horizon, the top of the screen, and it's, it's gone. 
And it, when I write but the fiction that I'm working on, when I write just, you know, these educational pieces I'm trying to write, promote, I find myself borrowing from that feeling of once it's past the top, it's gone. I'll you know also I mean? say it also makes the CSS a lot easier to implement and it makes it a lot easier <laughs> to recycle DOM elements. And that's where it originated. That's another example of where what's supposed to be the last stage of the software manufacturing pipeline, allowing that to feedback and allowing there to be dialogue and disagreement between these different phases of creation. I think we've loosened up a little bit, right? When we introduce rewind functionality that allows you to delete from the tip. We have been planning and designing a, a full suite of editing tools, some of which might be available during telling. Part of that is also to keep players all in one place so that you're not scrolling back, reading something that happened 10 paragraphs ago while everybody else is moving forward and, and you're not participating. It's weird to think about a text as having moments, about a text as having a present and a past. We're so used to encountering them and also fashioning them to be static. That makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to earlier. Nariscope 2020, was that your big reveal? Was that your first? Um, that was like our coming like, out party. Yeah. It so was. <laughs> yeah, coming well, out we, party. Too. yeah, we, <laughs> so we had been working on it and February was the Nariscope submissions and we've been working on it for about a year and a half at that point. And clearly it was in some state, right? We submitted the idea for this talk. A very honestly, a different state than what we ended up launching our closed beta with. That presentation was such a whirlwind tour through not just the technology that you were building. It feels like I am being taught a whole 101 course on linguistics as I'm going through this highly technical talk. But what's so fascinating about it is you could see where all of the technical pieces are coming together. Then in the middle, Doug presents Moat as queering language. And I was just like really struck by that. And that's most of why I re-return to watching this talk is I understand, but also I want to see what that looks like. And Doug, I, I saw you later had a big bad con panel where the panel host was also really interested in what this concept was. And you were a little bit unsure about, did I say that? Did, do you... It was, I do remember that it was big bad. That was my first time ever being on, on a panel and I was pretty nervous. And we actually had a list of questions that we had talked about in advance that we were all going to talk about. And I prepared quite a bit and that question was not on the list. And I just, I was like a deer in the headlights, but you know what? It, I think part of it is also. We were talking about this earlier, Anthony, and, and it made me think about it. And, and I want to situate that Nariscope talk in its historical moment. Nariscope was originally planned for a long weekend of the first weekend of June 2020 in Champaign-Urbana. I took the whole week before off work and John and I planned to fly out to Chicago to see my parents and to see friends for Memorial Day weekend. Then we were going to rent a car, drive down to Champaign-Urbana and go to Nariscope and then drive back, fly back and somehow hopefully get to work on Monday morning. But then the pandemic happened, right? Nariscope got turned into a event that spanned that whole week. I already booked the days off work, so I kept them. I said, this way I'll be able to like really enjoy it, really see all the talks that I want to see, participate in the Discord. Then on May 25th, George Floyd was murdered. Con started on May 28th. And so the con, the beginning of the con coincided with the 2020 uprisings. When I think back on it, it totally colored everything that was going on at that conference in a kind of a weird way. I gave my talk at, I think, 9.30 a.m. Pacific time. And if I opened my window at that time, I still would have been able to smell the tear grass in the air from the night before. And so that talk, changed a lot really in the 24 hours before I gave it a lot of stuff got added that had been cut a, a lot of stuff that I had self-edited before it even hit the page ended up in there and I think that when I used the word queer I was searching for a word that for a variety of really unremarkable reasons as a white millennial university educated professional I didn't have access to in that moment. And I think that word is anarchist. 
that's really interesting. I don't, I, I, that, so I took that and, you know, I'm springing this on you, but I yeah. did some research earlier today that is in conversation with the idea of queer games in particular, queer systems of design for games. There's two bits of it. As I was going through, I was going through some talks that Avery Alder had given. One of the things that Avery talks about is explicit power dynamics and challenging slash subverting them, which yeah. to you, that might actually be more of an anarchist thing, but Avery experiences them as queer. And then also character non-monogamy. Avery says that character non-monogamy challenges us to give up ownership of a character in favor of a focus on building community spaces and complex relationships in oh, collaboration with each other. she's not talking about the characters being fictionally monogamous with one another. She's talking about the relationship between a player and a player character as being a monogamous relationship. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I may have some, like, personal quibbles about monogamy and non-monogamy having something mm -hmm. to do with the character and the player's relationship with each other. It is a little bit helpful to think of it in that way. So by giving up ownership of the character, we're enabling ourselves to buy in more on the relationship between characters. I see that being a change in mode. I believe that you are focusing on every one of the players having equal participation on each of the different personas available in a moat story. And that's like an explicit change. And one that I wasn't even sure if I liked. I don't know. Yeah. Can you talk about that change? You started talking about ownership of things, right? So who owns a thing? And any kind of like responsibility for a thing. So there's a difference between owning a thing and having responsibility for it. One of the things that Doug talks about in his 2020 Nariscope talk is that players have a responsibility. The players in games have a responsibility. And when there's a machine controlling that, you can't run off the map because the video game told you you couldn't and put a big invisible wall there. Then you have players just running amok, trying to run off the map, trying to find the glitch, trying to find how they can break the thing. I've done it myself. We've all done it in video games, right? But I think one of the things that most excited me about Moat, especially early on, and this move towards characters is, in my view, a manifestation of that, right? It's the realization of that, which is that Moat is all about each of the individual players being responsible to all of the other players. When you're doing a, a play or you're in a band, every one of those players is responsible to the other players. You could just run out there on stage and say whatever the hell you want because it's a live performance, but there's a responsibility. Nobody owns the play. There are people who are responsible to the characters that they're playing, but they're also responsible to everybody else. And so I think one of the things I love is that we're taking it out of this realm of like, Mode is telling you what you own. Mode is telling you where your domain is. And instead putting that in the hands of the players and putting it in the hands of the creators who are authoring this extraordinary thing together. And so if you're playing with a group of people, you undoubtedly have an understanding, but there's a social contract there. You know, when we play Moat, we always have a Discord open or we always have a video chat open. If I want to do something as Peter, I'm going to say, hey, Anthony, I would love, can I play Peter for a bit? And you're going to go, yeah, do it. It'll be fun. Moat goes completely off the wall bad when there are players involved that are like, I can do whatever I want and I'm going to do whatever I want. Because that's not the experience of play. That's why the character, the move towards characters and being able to play whatever character someone has created is an opinionated design choice that is trying to create a culture of performance and a culture of play. I don't know if you use these words exactly. The machine, I believe, is the word that you use that is dictating play. That's not what mode is, but there is a machine of play that dictates video games, dictates MUDs, which we've already mentioned, multi-user dungeons. Even still, you have a person, a game master or facilitator or storyteller who may put down a wall because the mechanics of that game is yeah. telling you that the physics of the world as represented to the players does not allow certain actions to occur. Total and, cop shit. Yeah. 
but you present Moat as being more collaborative. I think to what you were talking about, Anthony, I think you can see that even if we go back to Apocalypse World, play to find out what happens. The idea that there isn't a story and a problem that the players are set to work on and attempt to navigate. And that instead the fiction is constructed through play, not that play is a way of navigating a pre-existing fiction. It's just a, it's a fundamental inversion. And obviously Avery Alder comes out of that Power by the Apocalypse tradition. Yeah, there were story games before Apocalypse World, but to look back at like a historical moment where that dam broke, a lot of people were awakened by that, I think in some ways. I think it's interesting because we're talking about Avery Alder and Avery Alder, of course, has written the game specifically for Moat. Definitely when I saw that, I was like, oh, a, a perfect match. I was actually going to ask about contacting game designers. What was that process like? When we reached out to these game designers, we just reached out to like our favorites. <laughs> They're like, these are incredible writers. All of them said yes. And we were like, what the hell? We didn't expect we made a to hit say list. yes to us. We, were, we yeah. made a hit list and everyone said yes. Yeah, it's like the top five people we wanted to reach out to. And they were just like, yes, 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 yes. We started doing this about six months, seven months, reaching out to these designers after we had come out at Neroscope. It, it's hard when you've lived inside of this kind of design world and you're creating something new. It's hard to know who, if people are going to get excited about it, if they're going to see the potential. And one of the things that was the, so this kind of is a theater part of me. I was a professional stage director for 10 years. As a stage director, here's what you do. You cast the show, you get your artistic staff, and then you just sit back and make sure that things looks good. Because what happens is all of these brilliant artists that you cast and hired, they come together and they help you make this extraordinary thing. My mentor and stage director said, if you find yourself doing a lot of work during rehearsal and like planning, you probably didn't cast it right because these are all artists in their own right. And I was so excited to get these artists to come and contribute what they saw in Moat. And I think that Doug and I learned so much about what Moat is, about what it could do by looking at what these different designers poured into it and what they created in it. And a lot of the work that came afterwards was in many ways inspired by, or at least influenced by what these designers, these artists had created for us. Every one of them approached this unique kind of like instrument platform with a completely different perspective. You look at Aaron Reed's Spirit of Camp Pinewood, it's so spare, right? It's literally like this brilliant, elegant exercise in how to manipulate and inspire a, a performer just enough and then hands off when it actually comes to the thing. And I love that about it. You look there at something are, I like, think in that game, there are a lot of tricks that you can pull out and use more generally. His suggestion that you open the opening scene by somebody saying the last line of a ghost story. It's so specific and mechanical. It's just perform this action. And as a player, you know how to perform it already. But it sets up a scene that's starting in media res, which is actually challenging to do with a group on moat. It's something that we've used since then. Tell the punchline of a joke or, or something like that to, to kick a scene off in a fun way. You look at all of the different designs that we got back and they all contribute in some ways. Like Sharing Viswas has contributed to this idea of like, how do we structure a thing? It's, it's the most structured out of all the games. And it's the only two person game. It's really fascinating because two-person moat is advanced. It's advanced moat. And it's really fascinating how he addressed that. You look at, we played that creation game, right? As per your instructions by Julian Kim. And they put together this incredible game that has the, a ton of material that is just so like rich, but it depends on the players bringing their own creativity. And it's almost like this list of incredibly rich things with mechanics that help you explore them. And then you look at Julian Jarbo's game. Every time I've played that game, I have done typos because I was laughing too hard. I was like, <laughs> and it's just like banging with meat hooks on the keyboard because there was just wildness and insanity happening in there. And then you look at Avery's game and Avery's game is really interesting to me because it helped me understand a lot better where the bridges would be between things like Powered by the Apocalypse and even the Dragon Game, 
I'm grateful to Avery for creating that game because it, it, it helped me understand and really inspired me to think about, oh, wow, Moat can also be this platform and this tool for these uh, role-playing games that people already play, that already have mechanics. You just have to adjust a little bit what you're doing. And so I think learning all of those things, seeing all those possibilities, the timing, the comedy, the structure, how the mechanics are merged with that real-time narrative engine and storytelling, how you can create these really elegant and subtle rules that can drive narration, that can drive real prose writing, all of those kind of things together, for me, were one of the things I got the most out of the creation of games. And they're great games. You can just play them. Yeah, they're not necessarily specific to Moat, but in a lot of cases, they feel like appendages to Moat. Each one of them feels like an invitation to explore something different. And we didn't plan. That was total. Yeah. We just said to the designers, do something rad. And they had great pitches and then they just made them. And it, all five of them had this unique, extraordinary character to them that explored a different aspect of the platform. That was a really fun two or three months when we were commissioning those. Doug, I have a question about the very tail end of your Nariscope presentation. Taking this idea of how rendering pipelines in games are really critical and Speculating that narrative pipelines would be, in the future, a critical piece of telling stories in games. So what is a narrative pipeline? Yeah, what I was talking specifically about was about prose rendering. I think I've seen so many games where the text in the game is maybe the most important part. Maybe they're incredibly dialogue heavy with your classic multiple choice dialogue system, very Baldur's Gate, and they are using asterisks to mark emphasis because they don't have rich text in their dialogue rendering. Or I think about a lot of the tooling around creating the texts that appear in games, even thinking about something really advanced like ink, how much of that is really oriented around text manipulation. I, I remember having the experience of playing 80 days and how complex the text manipulation has to be to try to make everything feel like it's flowing as these prose paragraphs. But with prose, especially if you want to kind of link things together in a modulated way, you've got dangling punctuation that needs to move around, or you've got capitalization that needs to change or something. And it feels to me like manipulating text and trying to render text at the character level is not super helpful. It's like trying to make a 3D graphic by specifying the changes to the color of each pixel. Another hobby of mine, 3D graphics programming, really enjoy doing that. And this is kind of where this idea came from of you think about the modern 3D graphics pipeline where you've got a vertex shader and then usually somewhere in the card or in the graphics library, you're doing perspective division. And then downstream, you're doing a fragment shader. And over the years, they've added more of these geometry shaders and, and things like that. You're able to plug in at different points and manipulate data that's flowing through a pipeline, some of which actually makes it out into pixels on the screen. It was really a thought about taking the idea of the narration engine that is at the, the heart of the most storytelling experience and thinking about how that could be applied more broadly to creating much more varied and, and powerful text experiences for games. If that sparks anything in people, they should absolutely check out the Nariscope talk that we've been talking about, which goes really in depth on how that looks in Moat. I found just by digging through your GitHub profile, looking to see if you had any other projects in the same vein. I saw something called Quick Grammar. Is that sort of like a narrative pipeline? Not at all. It, it's more like what I'm complaining about. It's something that I created over the years just to help myself with creating generative grammars. But like I said, it, it, it operates on strings. That's a library I've used in a couple of unreleased projects for generating text from a grammar. And clearly this is something I'm interested in and have been tinkering with for a long time. Sometimes that you look at somebody's ink script and there's all these special if then statements they're doing to add the comma in the right place. And thinking about how tools can operate at a higher level of abstraction so that we don't have to worry about that. For example, one example of a book that's created this way is, and I don't know anything much about the underlying technology, but Aaron reads Subcutaneous, speaking about another queer person who made a game for Mo, 
another queer person who made this very cool queer text. But subcutanean, I imagine, is modulated more at the paragraph level or even the chapter level with possible things like names of proper nouns or things that swap in in places. That's actually really thought provoking because I've played around with ink before. What's the word for what ink is? It's a domain specific language for creating interactive stories, specifically choice based interactive fiction. And of course, people have gone on to make full 3D games just using that as the narrative backbone. But yeah, to have to manipulate in order to get a comma in the right place could be the wrong approach, or at least it could just be a massive time waster if there was something a little bit like what you're referring to. But is the grammar of moat a little bit more pipelined or is it more like your quick grammar where you're doing a lot of really hard work behind the scenes? We're doing our best to take in player input, which, yeah, it's a strength. We take in player input and we try to interpret it into, and this has gotten more advanced just in the past year, to, to interpret it into a predicate or maybe a complement or some other kind of linguistic structure. First, to break it down into pieces of words and punctuation and then try to assign meaning to those words and, and put it into a semantic structure that then we're able to render into prose, what we would call today a cue. If you imagine a, a moat story as being a single log of cues that are then stitched together visually to create the text that you see. Really what it is is this engine putting together these different cues that each have meaning to the engine. That's what's so exciting about what we're thinking of doing in the future. So we have some plans that really utilize that on a whole bunch of different levels of interaction with the text, whether that's in the telling of the text, whether it's in the reading of the text or the editing of the text, realizing that this kind of diagramming, right, of the language and breaking it down into its operative bits and pieces, that that isn't just an extraordinary kind of thing when you're telling a story as a group, collaborative group. It's also an extraordinary thing when you're reading a story and say, you want to read it in the first person and then you want to read it in the third person. It's the same story. You just change the person of the story, right? This is far future stuff. But if you're, for example, editing it and you want to change the name of a character, or you want to change their pronouns, or you want to change the, the order that things happened in. And all of a sudden, because you have all of this information that's attached to the story that was told, you have this extraordinary, it's really incredible amount of control over the text, this extraordinary amount of editorial control and experiential control over the text that just doesn't exist in any other format. The way that this is structured it's inspiring the next version of Moat, which is going to be all about utilizing that fundamental technology to give people who are telling, people who are reading, people who are editing the experience of being able to manipulate all of those kind of points. And I think the big design challenge for us is how do we create an editing experience within Moat that is not a productivity experience, that is still collaborative and still playful? That's really interesting. It's firing off so many thoughts for me, but I don't even know where to start with them. And <laughs> I have a lot of other questions. Hi, listeners. This is Anthony butting in as we switch topics to something a little more serious. Coming up, there will be mention of a special theater production with cyberbullying and suicide in it. If you'd like to skip that, we circle back around to Moat in the last eight minutes. Okay. Let's go back to my interview with John and Doug. As I understand it, the both of you helped run a theater nonprofit together. Yeah, we co-founded it and it was built on our experience in theater, but also our experiences. Doug says he finally feels like a designer, but he's been a designer since I met him. The, the organization that we founded together was called Isinglass. Isinglass being a clarifying substance in, in alchemy. The whole point of the organization was to try and explore the boundaries between within the arts and within performance and to say, we have all of these performative spaces that are just cropping up. We founded this back in 2012 and this was right at the surge of the growth of things like Facebook. So like just this 
we were right on that kind of moment where Facebook and, and other social media networks were really starting to become dominant megatech. And we saw them as these spaces that were performative spaces, that were places that people were telling their stories. And what is the distinction between the theater and the stage and a different kind of stage where our culture is telling their stories and people are telling their stories and sharing their lives? And so we started to think about that and explore it. What came out of that was a project called Social Shakespeare, essentially Shakespeare that was told on Facebook for the most part. There was a little bit on Tumblr as well, but it was mostly on Facebook because we recognized that Facebook was an unmediated space in a lot of ways. It was a space at the time. And it was a space where, for example, one of our actors had this joke that they would do on Facebook. It's, It's a silly little joke, but it gives you an idea. One of them would post, I'm moving to Denver. They're not moving to Denver. They just post they're moving to Denver. And then they count how many of their friends congratulate them. These are literally people who they see three times a week. And how many people are like, oh, my God, you didn't tell me. It's so great. And it's like, girl, I literally saw you yesterday. Do you think (laughs) I would not tell you that I was moving to Denver? (laughs) It was this joke that they would play because the credulity that people approach social media spaces with is one of their key defining characteristics. They're a digital space where you believe everything you read. And until we've reached this mature age right now, right, this nobody is believes what, anything. What we're talking about, right. like it, it was this very specific historic moment, this very specific technological moment. The show that we did was much ado about nothing. We had the actors play their parts in the show, which didn't include any of the original language, using their own social media accounts under their own name. We had it heavily planned out from a time perspective to unfold over the course of three days. We basically did a long weekend and John and I sat in our apartment in Portland on computers at our table, just running the show. Our actors were across the country doing it from home, posting. A lot of the posts had already been written or workshopped to a certain point. A lot of the media had been created, like photos and videos over the weeks leading up to the show. And the actress who was playing Hero, she is slut shamed and bullied to the point of faking her own suicide. It was a very timely story. It was also not nearly as funny as it is on stage. (laughs) (laughs) It was not funny. Our our production wasn't funny. It was alarming. So reflecting on the ways that death is handled in social media, she enlisted several of her real life friends to start posting on her wall these in memoriam posts talking about her being dead while she went dark from social media. She had for weeks up until the show been blasting on her socials that she was going to be doing this and everything was going to be okay. She still got flooded with text messages. And at one point we had to take over her Facebook account to help deal with the number of private messages that she was getting. And I don't think it's something that it's absolutely not something that we could do today. It was a different Mm -mm. time. She got texts from her grandmother who she had had an explicit conversation with over the phone. saying this is what's going to happen it's not real and her grandmother her friends are texting her her grandmother's texting her she texts us and she's i i don't know if i can keep doing the show guys it's nuts like i Mm. i'm I'm spending all my time telling my family i'm okay even though i told them this was all fake there's a comment that always pops into my head that someone did on one of the posts listen i know this is all fake and this is just a show but you need to text me and tell me you're okay And that was this moment of education for me and for Doug and I think for everybody involved about how extraordinary and unexpected and unhandleable this space was, where even if you knew, literally knew that something was fake, if it was something that was powerful enough, something that was worrisome enough, it would drive you to reach out and make sure that it was fake. That's how much credibility just posting on Facebook provided just this story that was intended to be a little bit dramatic and traumatic and intended to be a piece of art that moved people. After that, we weren't on Facebook for six months at least, and then we quit Facebook entirely in 2013 or something because we had just realized what it was, its power, and it's like the horror, and that power and that horror extend to all of these kinds of things. The credibility people give this information in this particular format And I'm sure there's lots of scholarship about why it does that. But actually living inside of it as a piece of art was really interesting. And now, of course, 
what John's saying sounds completely trite and completely, we know this, of course, social media is bad, blah, blah, blah. But this was 2012. It was a different time. But what you're telling me is you had a vision into the future. Well, I don't I mean, think we was... knew that then. I, yeah. Like yeah. hindsight allows us to make a lot more sense of what happened and how we felt about it than I think we were able to have at the time. I know it was a really impactful art experience for the performers, for sure. Because for years after that, we heard from them about how it impacted them. You create these mediations, these like barriers, the fourth wall, we call it in theater. You create these barriers. And even when, and that's one it's of the, the magic key, of the theater, right? That kind of experience of theater in the digital space, that lack of that it's a shocking because it's a hyper mediated right everything we do online is hyper mediated but the lack of mediation, which is theater's unique quality comes through in social media but with the freedom of this digital space where you can make up anything and where the effects can be as ridiculous and insane as you can make them and where the design of the technology the user experience flattens all of those sources of information, all of those experiences, the news, I'm going to Denver and my best friend just killed herself are rendered in exactly the same way. They're completely flattened to where they are indistinguishable and there is no hierarchy of information in that way, which everybody knows now, but was really interesting then. I feel like what Moat is doing is interdisciplinary. What social Shakespeare did was interdisciplinary and we're now coming to grips on what the technology is capable of me listening to you tell that story reminds me of the film theater goers running out of the way when a train is coming at the camera lens and is being projected <laughs> onto the screen and it's coming at them something else that comes to mind is how in larping they call exactly the feelings of your actor in distress after being slut shamed, they call that bleed. They have a word for that. We have all of these tools now, but that doesn't make the bleed go away. That doesn't mean that people, because they know misinformation exists and is widespread, doesn't make people less likely to believe it. I guess, where does that leave us? It's interesting because we're talking, I see a lot of similarities be between LARPs and playing on moat. I see a lot of similarities Same. between these performances that we've talked about a little bit and the effects that you can have on moat. And I'll be, this is actually something that I'm just realizing, which is that I tend towards very mediated experiences on moat. And I think part of it is I understand very, very controlled experiences with like really explicit understandings. We have a lot of safety conversations as you've seen we're like we're pg-13 on this one guys and we're not going to talk about this or this on most of the moat games that we play and part of that is because i think moat is a space that has a similar impact when we were first starting to play moat with people and just figuring out what it was we didn't understand that two-person moat was advanced we had no clue because we didn't know anything about it we'd made this amazing thing that we loved and we had no clue I just want to interject there. I want to add sure. the reason why we always say that two-person moat is advanced is because when you're playing two-person moat, basically you're always pitching or you're always catching, right? You're always needing to really closely watch what the other person is saying. So when it's a time for you to participate where you can either support what they're doing or add your own thing, or you are in the lead and you're creating something, there's never a time when you can just sit back and watch the scene unfold and then find where you want to jump back in. What's interesting is we didn't understand that about it. And this was during the summer, I think, of 2020. So a lot of people were in not the best spot psychologically at that point at all. Uh, not that it's gotten much better, but honestly, we're just used to it. But we were playing with folks and we would play two or three person mode and they'd be improvs and it would go dark really quick because it would just be improvs. I have very specific games in my head that went into these incredibly figurative spaces that were about being hunted, about being tortured, about being isolated, about being abused by faceless outside forces. And I'll tell you what, I had three improv games with three different people who turned into that. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. turn it down. This is too real. I can't, no, no more. I'm not, nope. Oh, look at this very detailed framework I've just put together with a prompt that <laughs> we're going to follow. 
so that I don't have to exist in the dark collective unconscious that we're all living in right now. And I think that there's something to be learned about that. There's something about the responsibility of the artist that comes out in that. I, I still have conflicted feelings about social Shakespeare. And it's because I ask myself constantly, did I fulfill my responsibility as an artist? And as a creator to my audience, I'm on the side of mostly, yes, I did, because most of the people that I've talked to about it in time later have been like, that was a really extraordinary experience that changed who I am and how I approach these tools. And I was like, that's what art's all about is to transform people in a positive way to arm them. But I think that moat is this vast, it's still mostly unexplored. It's a vast space. And every time I get on with people. There are new things that impact me and affect me. There are new figures I learn about. Figures is the term in music, right? Like a figure or a melody that I discover that I love. There are new duets and counterpoints that I'm uncovering. I think if you look at that history of the art that Doug and I have created together before, I don't even know what this says about us, Doug, to be honest with you, but literally we are about violating that kind of intimacy space. And by intimacy, I mean that, that personal space that's right up next to you. That bleed, it's the bleed. We're interested in playing in that space and seeing how we can make it a positive experience and an impactful one. Doug, do you have any thoughts about that? You shook your head and then laughed. I don't know. I mean, it just sounded, it, it sounded wild. I'm fine with it. Sorry okay. if I invented something off the top of my head. <laughs> you should edit it all out. <laughs> no, it was great. I just wanted to, because there was a reaction there that the listener is not getting, but I'm getting. Yeah. I don't have anything real to say. I was just reacting because I don't know, John, what is, yeah, that doesn't sound good. Sounds, <laughs> well, here's the thing. It does sound good, but whatever it means to have the responsibility of the artist or the responsibility of the role player or the responsibility of the game designer, you've seen those game designers take what that is and make something really great out of it. You've seen all of the times where it has gone right. I've seen it myself. And I'm just wondering, is that what is required in order to get something really new? I think both of you said at various points profound. I don't let Doug answer. I don't know. That sounds really highfalutin. <laughs> no, that's not what I mean by highfalutin. What do I, I don't mean highfalutin. It just sounds, it sounds good. I think it's a thought that we're all sitting with right now. Because yeah. of the way this conversation has gone. I think that we're all trying to take the connective tissue of this interview and see, whoa, what do all, what do these things mean altogether? Yeah, I think the implications of mode have astounded both Doug and myself. And I have to remind myself that it's okay to be astounded by them because it's a weird, it's not, it's not a very humble thing to say or a modest thing to say that we're astounded by this thing we've made. I think that's a part of making technology is that you can make technology that surprises you with what it does or what it's able to do. It can be good and it can be bad. The surprise that you get out of what you made. But I, I don't think there's anything wrong or even unusual with being surprised by what you made. And I think that it continues to surprise us. It's not a finished thing and it probably never will be. It's an instrument. It's a place to build instruments. I am continually impressed with Moat. I don't get to play games on it nearly as much as I want to. Really what I want to do as a non-professional game designer was really excited about the prospect of being able to share what you call moods, the little snippets of story that you can interject while each player is typing out their own parts of the scene. Some of the plans we have for characters, some of the plans we have for moods, which are, by the way, moods are going to be taking on a different character and probably a different name, but it's all going to be part of a suite of storytelling tools that are part of the telling aspect of Moat, which is its main activity, that kind of players gathering and telling. But I think a lot of them, a lot of these tools are going to really give they're going to fulfill that excitement. They're not going to be exactly, I think, what we were talking about a year ago. But that's because our concept of the thing has adjusted a little bit. We went to Oricon, which is our hometown sci-fi fantasy con in November. And we met a lot of people there who were really different than the people we've been meeting online. And it was mostly people who are not into tabletop role-playing games. 
it was mostly people who are into writing, who are into co-writing, who are groups, circles of friends with whom they have over years created vast sci-fi and fantasy worlds and created stories within them, either doing play by post or just literally just writing together or people who are using forums to do forum RP. And I think something that we realized while we were there was that without any big additional features, we had a core of a product that was for those people, but there were elements of it that were missing that we just hadn't invested in. I think that we have gotten pulled in a lot of different directions since we started working on this project and especially since we started sharing it with other people. We were working on a feature last fall that was actually probably 70% complete that was called decks, which allowed you to create very simple decks of cards that you could, it was synced and shared between everyone in the story. Everybody saw the same card next to your story while you were playing, whether they had prompts or whatever inside of them, and also an, an authoring suite for those decks. And that's when we put that on pause was when we got home from Oricon because it felt like we wanted to really invest in the fundamentals of the storytelling experience and create a really rich and solid foundation of a storytelling experience that these other things could be on top of and not be building a Jenga tower with lots of holes. We realized that the, the narration engine just had extraordinary implications. So we had a couple of undoubtedly wine-fueled multi-hour brainstorming sessions. And just to speculate about what a gaming world building and gaming engine would look like if it was founded on the narration engine that Doug had created and how incredible that could be. If you add a little bit more of the machine and a little bit more of the design in, but you keep this idea of prose narration, you keep this idea of almost like reading a book, but it's a game. And that's something that is, is a far future thing, but this idea of being able to create worlds on mode that you could then invite people to come in and collaboratively play games that you develop is definitely something that's on our radar right now. Now, listen, it's just Doug programming. <laughs> so it's going to be, it's down the future. But I think there's so much, we've got so much stuff to explore with this thing that we created. I can tell you right now, just talking about it gets my heart pitter-pattering. And I, I wanted to hook into something that John just said about me being the only programmer. I think that for John and I, our dream is that this isn't just us for very much longer. Our dream is that we find a community of people who want to contribute to this as much as we do, who we can form a collective with to continue to grow this idea and build this, this thing. I think that would be amazing. And also, I think that is the perfect optimistic note that we were looking for to start to wrap up the podcast. Wrap it up. But before we go, we have something that I like to just call Spotlight. Spotlight is where we just get the chance to each share either a tool, piece of software, or something else that we thought could use a little bit more of a Spotlight assigned to it. The tool that I'd like to bring up is called Multiverse. You can find it at playmultiverse.com. Something that has been inspiring me about it is that Multiverse to me is like a collaborative 2D scene creation tool for role-playing online. If you had a Stardew Valley, but with a little bit more of the Minecraft ethos of creating together, built into the structure of play. Their company goes by one more multiverse, but the website is playmultiverse.com. Doug, why don't you go next? So my spotlight is, it's not a new tool, but I guess they have news. It's in Form 7, which they just announced recently is now being open sourced. Inform 7 is a programming language for writing interactive fiction and text adventures. But the, the language itself is the natural language programming language. Inform 7 programs read like descriptions of stories written in normal English. I, I think I first got exposed to Inform 7 back when I was in college. At that time, I was doing a lot of linguistics coursework. And it, that was absolutely like a, a formative inspiration for me of thinking about 
what was possible with technologies that are analytical technologies, not stochastic methods like machine learning algorithms that get a lot of press these days, but ways of working with human language that are also understandable and directly manipulable by humans. John, what about you? Mine is an oldie, but a goodie. So it's called Backwards and Forwards by David Ball. It teaches you how to examine dramatic texts in a way that is performance oriented. When you actually look at the structure of the most brilliant dramatic texts, they always fall into these patterns. One of the core patterns is this idea of how the performers need to take actions. Characters have actions that are leading them towards objectives and that there are obstacles in the way. And that is the fundamental structure as a series of actions with objectives and obstacles that undergirds all dramatic, the best dramatic writing. As I've been rereading it for probably the two dozen times I've read this book, trying to use the structures to help me understand a little bit better how to teach people about playing the textual instruments that exist in Moat. There are lots of other beautiful ideas in that book, so that's what I'd like to spotlight. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you both, Doug and John, for agreeing to be on the podcast. I'm super excited to see where Moat goes. And you've left me with a lot of thought-provoking stuff that I'm going to mull over and maybe even follow up on in your community. So again, thank you so much for being on Play Tracing. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You can find Doug and John on Twitter. Their links are in the show notes. And you can find Moat at MoatStories.com. Thank you, listeners. Playtracing is a labor of love. And if you're excited by what I'm doing here, feel free to reach out. Okay. Take care. You too.